children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. Those who remain can join us in Psalm 98. We are doing a little series here in Advent on Psalm 98, which is the inspiration for the hymn, Joy to the World. Uh, looking at uh, what our source, sources of joy ought to be in a world that can so often be full of sadness and despair. We looked last Sunday at the joy in receiving our King. Today, we'll be looking at the joy of recognizing His salvation. This is Psalm 98. This is God's Word. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the truth of your word uh, that we may see and recognize the joy that you offer in your salvation, that you've worked for your people. Do this, uh, that we might be those who are marked out by you, by your might, by your grace, your mercy, your holiness, your salvation, that all the ends of the earth would see it and know that you are God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever noticed how so many things in life follow patterns that teach us more significant things? I mean, some some maybe aren't you know, life-changing significant, like the the sportscaster jinx, you know, as soon as the guy says he hasn't thrown an interception in 15 games, that's when he throws the interception. And you just know what's coming to the point that, that people just cringe. Or there was a time when about 10 or 10.30 every morning, I would just feel awful and be a little shaky. And, you know, some people recommended that maybe I, I reduce my coffee intake, but they t- had no idea what they were talking about. I just ate lunch earlier. That's all I did. I was drinking so much coffee that I was, I was getting the shakes. There, there's a pattern. And if I had eyes to see it, I would know why about 10 o'clock every morning I was feeling a little jittery. Or when your kids are just 
acting out and you, and you think back, you're like, they, they missed their nap. You, you just know. When, when they don't have that nap they, they, or they miss it, you just know it's coming. Difficulty. There are these patterns in life. And there are more significant ones too, right? In our culture, the times and seasons. But there are patterns in Scripture too. And Scripture shows us that, that the patterns of the way the Lord works reveal to us deep truths, deep theological truths that ought to shape and govern the way we think, the way we feel, the way we live. And there are all sorts of these. We don't have time to look at them all this morning. But Psalm 98 points us to the patterns that we can observe in the way God saves. You see this all over Scripture, even back to the Old Testament, that the penultimate work of salvation in the Exodus of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt when they pass through the Red Sea unscathed and Pharaoh's armies are drowned at the bottom, they break out into a new song of praise to their God. And even when God's people return from exile, as we think Psalm 98 uh, refers to, they break out into this new song. Even Mary, who references Psalm 98 or the same scriptures that Psalm 98 references from Isaiah that we'll look at next week. She also, on the coming of the Lord, the, the incarnation, even while he's still in her womb, she breaks out into a new song. Because God's salvation is so great, they recognize it. And it, it, it works in them this response. So what is it that they're seeing? What, what is it about God's salvation that is so incredible, so amazing, that it would cause God's people time and time and time again to break out into joyful songs? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. There are more things that we could say perhaps, but we'll look at four. We're going to see that God saves in unimaginable ways. Only he can do it. God saves in unexpected ways. Nobody can predict it. God saves in undeserved ways. There's no one that can make God do it or force his hand. And God saves in ways that are unhindered and unrestrained. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can hold back the flood of his saving work. We're going to look at those four things and see if we can also find the joy that the Lord offers in recognizing the glory of his salvation. So the first thing I want us to look at is how God saves in unimaginable ways. Only God can do what God does. You'll notice that Psalm 98 never speaks of it as our salvation. It's his salvation. He's made known his salvation. He's worked salvation for him. It's a, it's a salvation that is saving us, but it's God's work. And he carries out this work, you see in verse 1, with his right hand and his holy arm. 
I mean, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like a man. And so when Scripture speaks of his right hand, it's speaking of his power. As, as a king would take his mighty sword in his right hand and use it to, to gain victory for his people. So God, when he works mightily with his right hand, he works with power unimaginable that only God can wield. We can't wrap our heads around this to the point that we get ourselves caught in circles. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? We, we don't even know. How do you describe infinite, unrestrained power? I don't know. But when God moves with his mighty right hand, no one else can do the things he does. This is why his arm is called his holy arm. To be holy is to be set apart as different for some special purpose or some special use, which is why God sets his people apart as holy, as saints, because we are set apart in him for a special purpose. God's holiness is the source of all of that. He is completely set apart from the rest of creation. He has no beginning. He has no end. He existed before all things. He brought all things into existence by the power of his word. And when he works, try as you might. Look for all the metaphors and similes that you can. You can never fully describe what God does. It is too incomprehensible and amazing. It's holy. What God has done in bringing salvation to his people, who has done such a thing? Who's defeated death? Who has wiped away sin? Who has brought forth hope amid despair and light in the darkness? And he does these things. This salvation, he's worked for him. Like, not, not only could, could no one do it, no one could even conceive of it. And this is why when we speak of the salvation that we have in Christ, we come back time and again to the reality that, that Christ must be truly God and truly man. The salvation that God has worked is not a salvation that, that a mere mortal could have carried out, or Moses would have done it, or Abraham, or Adam before him. It's not something that we can construct or manufacture on our own. And yet, for God to just show up in the splendor of his holiness, a holiness that causes even the angels to cover their feet and their faces in awe and reverence and fear, who could stand? But God comes indeed. comes in the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a true mediator, truly God, truly man, who can stand in the gap 
and bring peace and reconciliation between God and wicked sinners and to work salvation that no one else can do. Now, maybe this is Christianity 101 for you. But this is also the, the, the same point that we all struggle to wrap our heads around. We constantly make the mistake of thinking or acting as if there's something we can contribute to our salvation. Maybe if you were taking a theological test, you would say, of course, I can contribute nothing to my salvation. But the way we live, the way we measure our progress, the way we judge those around us who haven't quite reached our level, the way we overemphasize the things that we're good at and underemphasize the things that we're not good at, reveals that deep in our hearts is still that seed of self-righteous, self-reliance, where we think that God's salvation is great, but it's something that he needs our help with. But when you get on that track, it is a treadmill of despair, because try and try and try as you might, no matter how strong you are, no matter how mighty the works you can put together may be, you cannot do what God can do. And the salvation that he has worked is his because there's no one else who could do it. God himself, who knows all things, looked around. And the prophet Isaiah says, and he saw no one who could do it. So he did it. And there's a joy in that for us to recognize the God-sized nature of our salvation. It is no little thing. It is no insignificant thing. It's not just a little extra something that you get to, to put into your pocket with your vaccination card and passport to show off to all the little authorities. This is what God has done. God alone. And when you see it, there's joy there. God's salvation is not just unimaginable, it is also unexpected. Because no one, no one could have predicted it. Even God's people all the way back in the garden when Satan tricks Adam and Eve into sinning against God. And, and yet God, in the midst of, of laying down judgment, speaks words of grace and compassion and promise that he will work salvation, but that the head of the serpent will be crushed. Even the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea, 
with the pillar of fire of God himself standing between them and Pharaoh's army, were gripped with fear, having no idea how God was going to get them out of that one. Lost and locked away in exile. An exile that no other nation had ever returned from. God's people might have been wondering, will we ever return? How long, O Lord? And all that God has done, he does in the sight of the nations. It says he is revealed in verse 2, his righteousness in the sight of the nations. This is a surprising thing. These nations, the scripture says, rage against God, oppose the work of God, ignore and reject God as king. These nations that one theologian calls the habitations of desperate wickedness. What would you expect for God to bring and reveal to them? His wrath, perhaps, fire and judgment, You might expect God to show up with all of his heavenly host, these angelic armies to wipe off these desperate, wicked nations off the face of the earth. But would you have ever expected in the midst of that wickedness for God to reveal his righteousness? For in the midst of that darkness, for God to reveal his light in the midst of death, For God to bring life. Why would he do such a thing? Because when God saves, he saves in ways you would never have guessed. Who would have predicted that he would take on the form of a man and be obedient? Taking on the form of a servant being obedient even unto death, death on a cross. Such a wicked, ungodly, horrific form of execution. A form of execution devised to instill fear in everyone who has eyes to see this person lifted up. A form of execution designed to maximize suffering and anguish. Who would have guessed that God would not just, in spite of such wickedness, bring salvation, but would use even the most wicked forms of ungodliness that the world could devise and turn them to work them for salvation so that in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, God did not save in spite of the cross. He saved through it. Who would expect that this God who is so powerful would surprise us with grace, even in the midst of judgment? Who would surprise us with forgiveness in the midst of wickedness? Who would bring life even out of death? And yet that is what he does. This is what the good news of the gospel is. 
It is an announcement of God's righteousness revealed. A righteousness that is revealed in Christ, in his person, and a righteousness that is revealed in his people who are credited Christ's righteousness. It is given to you. It is given to all who have faith in Jesus, not because of anything that you've done to deserve it, but because God is kind and gracious and he reveals his righteousness in his works and he reveals his righteousness in his people. And it is good news that he does it because that is a righteousness that saves and allows us to stand before God forgiven, healed, and restored. Who comes up with such a thing? And yet, we struggle. We struggle to wrap our head around the surprise of God's salvation. We become bored with it. It becomes mundane. It's something we talk about every week. Come on, pastor, can't you preach about something else? And we think that we... can just be done with it. Or that we can control it. Or that we can set it about to our ends and our purposes. But God's salvation is so unexpected. It is so surprising. We can't sit around and decide who we think qualifies for it. The people that God chooses are the most ridiculous people he could ever choose. He doesn't, he chose Paul, this Jewish Pharisee who was going about killing Christians and sets him up as an apostle. Why not Caesar? Why not convert Herod or one of these people in power? But yet God chooses the low and the weak so that he can show that the surpassing power belongs to him. And not to us. Everything he does is surprising. Or we judge those who, who are redeemed. Thinking, well, that's not, I mean. I remember in college thinking, a friend of mine that I had been witnessing to and trying to, like, it's, it's over. It's done. Like, there's no way he is ever coming to Christ. And I don't know why I'm even bothering with it. And lo and behold, Not because of anything that I did, but one day he's like, guess what? God's salvation is so surprising. We don't like the surprise, though, because when you see how amazing and unexpected it is, you you can't help but be confronted with your own unrighteousness. Like We want to make God's salvation less audacious. We want to say, well, I'm not that bad. My sins aren't that great. My personal sins, the systemic sins in the world and in society, we want to say that, 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 I mean, it's not that big a deal. The scripture says other things. How we are dead in our trespasses and sins. How the, the world is hostile to God. It's not some passive easygoing, eh, you can take God or leave it. There's a hostility there. 
And yet God shows up and surprises us with mercy that changes us. There's a joy to be found in that. To let the audacious, unexpected, immeasurable glory of God's salvation just rest on you. Without your trying to control it or manipulate it, just to receive it and recognize it and be in awe of who your God is. Because when God saves, it's not just unexpected, it is always undeserved. None of us have earned it, and none of us have made God do it. And there is no one who can argue with God and somehow trick him into doing it or hold something over God and force him to do it. It says in verse 3 that the reason he did all of this is that he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. He's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. He's done this powerful, surprising work out of his own good pleasure. Is that that your conception of the living God? That he delights in seeking and saving the lost. That he rejoices in finding the wicked and redeeming them. That it is his very heart, as we've been studying in our evening gathering. It is his very heart to heal the wounded, to bind up the brokenhearted, to give strength to the weary, to seek and to save the lost. Is this how you think of him? All too often we make the mistake of of suddenly thinking that we somehow deserve his kindness. And in so doing, we make his kindness nothing. We make excuses for our sin. I can't believe I did that. That's not who I really am. I'm not really an angry person. I'm not really that selfish. I'm not really that vindictive or bitter. I'm not really that lustful and adulterous. I'm not re- That's not who I am. I'm a good person. And what do you need of Christ? When you see and recognize the heart of God for sinners and sufferers, there is joy to be found there. Because you know that it's not just that he can do it. It's not just that he likes to surprise us with grace. It's that his heart is for his people. 
He has made promises to the house of Israel that he intends to keep. Not because of them. They did not go into exile and get their act together and suddenly become a light to the nations. They did not. But God remembered his promises. He remembered his steadfast love, that Hebrew word hesed, that that encapsulates so many English concepts that, that we can't even put them into one word. We translate it steadfast love. It could be loyalty, covenant faithfulness, love, just this relational longing and commitment that cannot be measured. This is the heart of God for his people. And it's why he saves. Not because of you, but because of who he is. He's the God who saves. And when he saves, his salvation goes out unhindered. No one can stop it. This is obvious in the Greek, uh, original Greek of the book of Acts, where the very last word, as the church's ministry is just getting started, the very last word of the whole book of Acts is the word unhindered. Even with Paul imprisoned, the good news of the gospel is going forth without restraint unhindered. And so when God saves, he saves with such power, no one can hold back his arm, no one can question what he's done, and every eye will behold it. It will be made known to the ends of the earth that God saves. No place will be left unattended to. And such extraordinary mercy that God provides for us, deserves extraordinary praise. Which is why Psalm 98 lays out what it is God has done in the first three verses, but then launches into what our response could be and ought to be in the rest. That there ought to be a joyful noise in all the earth, in every place. That every voice ought to be lifted up that every instrument ought to be put to that use, that even creation itself, from the rivers and the streams to the mountains, they ought to roar forth and clap with praise and thanksgiving to God because of what he has done and because nobody can thwart it. The celebration and the report of what God has done in his work of salvation ought to reach every place, all the ends of the earth. This is why when Jesus returns, Scripture says every eye will behold him. There is coming a day when there will be no mistake, we will not be wondering, who is this coming to set things right? Are these alien invaders? Is this a trick? Is this some you know, new reality show? No, every eye will behold him and there will be no wondering or mistaking. It will be Jesus returning to set all things right. But connected to that, which is why Jesus has commissioned his people, his church, 
to go in the meantime into all the earth and make disciples of every nation. So that everyone will hear. So that everyone will have an opportunity to say, Behold, how good and pleasant it is to, to, to hear this wondrous announcement of peace with God. Sometimes we think that God's salvation is awesome and great and wonderful, but then we just want to keep it to ourselves. We're not motivated. Like it, we get more excited about these, these new subscriptions that we get. Let me tell you, like they send me food that I can cook myself and make these gourmet dishes. It's incredible. You should try it out. Or look at these new apps. I get them free, one every month. Jelly of the month or whatever it is. I mean, we, we get excited about these and we tell everybody about them. You know, to the point that companies like put incentives in. You know, get five of your friends to sign up and you get your next three months free or whatever. And, and we become evangelists for all kinds of ridiculous stuff. But the greatest thing, that death has been defeated, that sins are forgiven, that God is going to set all things right, no matter what the world may look like right now, the, good, the greatest news we hold tight and close. Even with one another. We focus on earthly things. We focus on earthly problems. We get angry and upset. We get frustrated and sad. We despair. And we have no eyes to see all of the opportunities out there that Jesus saw to announce good news. The fields are ripe for the harvest, he says. Who's going to go? In Psalm 98... Everyone who hears goes. Even the rivers, even the seas. And, and they're not going necessarily, having perfected their three or four point gospel presentation. They're making a joyful noise. This is the outflow and overflow of what God has done. Now, certainly, learn how to present the gospel, but that is not a requirement. It is not even a criteria. All who have heard and seen the greatness of God's salvation cannot restrain themselves. They break forth into a new song. When you read in the Exodus about Miriam, and the women grabbing their tambourines and dancing and singing after God destroys Pharaoh's army, that he has thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. You don't get the sense that they held a three-week colloquia to, to write just the perfect words. They just sang, and whatever came out, came out. You don't get the sense that Mary, though it's obvious she was steeped in Scripture, upon hearing Elizabeth's blessing and, and the Holy Spirit's work. You don't get the sense that she's... I'm going to lock myself away and try to compose something. And I'll post it on YouTube and edit it later. 
She just burst forth with praise. Why are we so restrained? Could it be that we don't know the joy because we don't recognize the glory and greatness of God's salvation? There's joy for us to see the God-sized nature. There's joy for us to recognize the surprise of salvation. There's joy for us to to see the heart of God for his people in the salvation. But there's, there's a unique kind of joy for the world to see when they see God's people recognize the greatness of the salvation that their God has worked for them. Are you willing to just make a joyful noise to the Lord? To talk about the greatness of his salvation? To pray with and for people? To, to live it as if it's an important, because it is an important part of your life? Look. There are all kinds of patterns in this world, but there, there is this pattern in salvation that, that we have to, to see and we cannot overlook, right? It's like, but not everybody can see it. It's like those magic eyes, right? right? Like some people can see the pattern. They can hold their eyes just right and they can see that it's not just a grid of things, but there's some picture behind it. Those who recognize the glory of God's salvation, they've unlocked the ability to see by the power of the Holy Spirit that if God works so greatly in this, how will he not give us all things in Christ? And this isn't about health and wealth gospel. This isn't about getting the Ferrari you've always dreamed of getting for Christmas. This is about having eyes to see what God is doing all around you right now. Where do you see his salvation at work even when those we love dearly are on their deathbeds? He's at work doing unexpected and amazing things. Where is the joy of of seeing how God is at work even when you are struggling under anxiety and depression? Do you recognize that yet as weighed down as your soul may be, and it feels real because it is real, yet God has not left you to it on your own. He is with you. He is working. And you haven't done anything to deserve it. And he is able to do above and beyond all that you could ask or imagine. Who do you rely on? Who do you call out to when you are in need? Where is the darkness greatest in your soul and in your life? And do you have eyes to see that expect God to show up? Working salvation with his mighty right hand and his holy arm. When you see it, when you see it, you'll see what the saints of old have seen. You'll see what the author of our hymn, Joy to the World, saw, you'll see what Psalm 98 calls our attention to. Our Savior reigns. 
And all that is left for us is to employ all our faculties to repeat the joy of what he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see this great salvation. Help us, O Lord, to live it. That the world might know that there is joy in the Lord. We ask that you would do this for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.